From Lakeley, it's How I Got Here. The stories behind the youth, high school, college, and professional sports journey, where it leads, and what we learn along the way. I'm Corey Koski, and on today's show, we have Johnny Pop's co-founder and CFO, Connor Ray. The Johnny Pop story started when co-founder Eric Brunts was in high school. He took a trip to visit his older cousin, Jonathan, who was beginning his first year of university. The pair, enthusiastic about real food that tastes great, swapped ideas on how to create a healthful, yet delightful, better for you treat. Back then, the only frozen treats on the market were artificially flavored ice pops or decadent heavy bars with a long list of ingredients that were difficult to pronounce. There was nothing in between. Unable to rid himself of this business idea that he and his cousin had dreamed up, he approached four classmates, Connor, Andrew, Jamie, and Killian, to help him make his dreams a reality. Armed with a blender, assorted kitchen utensils, and Eric's vision of a better-for-you frozen fruit bar, the boys made their way to the basement kitchen of their dorm. The guys spent many hours cutting and peeling fruit, blending and measuring ingredients, and freezing small batches in ice trays and prepping them with popsicle sticks. There were many weekends when wheeling carts of frozen treats to local farmer's market and, especially during finals week, distributing them around the campus. They named their frozen bar Johnny Pops after Eric's cousin, their original co-conspirator and visionary, Jonathan. Sadly, Jonathan passed away from a result of an accidental drug overdose in college. His passing filled the family with grief, but also fueled a desire to spark change. Co-founder Connor Ray tells us how he got here. Yeah, I mean, I have a, uh, a vivid, uh, a lot of vivid memories of youth sports. Uh, we got lots of fields <laughs> out there that uh, that were great. So I, I have uh, vivid memories of playing youth baseball uh, as a kid. I had one brother, and uh, my brother and my dad and I would uh, play a lot of catch out in the backyard, out in the field. My brother was definitely the better baseball player. Uh, I also played soccer all the way through, uh, through high school uh, until about halfway through. I played tennis uh, all the way through high school, uh, and then I played, uh, or I was a swimmer as well. That was the winter sport for me, was swimming. You say you had a lot of vivid memories playing youth sports. Maybe talk about one of those vivid memories, if you have a good experience or, you know, on the vice versa, a bad experience. Oh, I don't even know if it's possible to pick one good experience. I still, I actually think it's one of the craziest things. I feel like playing sports, not just watching it, but playing sports was such a big part of childhood. And now I look at my life and I'm like, how much time every week do I spend playing sports? And it's like zero. The closest you get is like, you know, an hour on the treadmill. And is that really, (laughs) is that as much fun as playing soccer for, you know, two hours? Uh, Not even close. It's probably about the same amount of running. Um, But I playing catch out in the backyard, playing baseball games on beautiful sunny days, you know, 85 degrees, sunny, you spend the whole weekend out at the baseball diamond, um, you know, playing soccer at these huge tournaments, you know, where there'd be hundreds of maybe thousands of uh, teams and, uh, you know, hopping in the, in the suburban, uh, picking up another family, driving to Rochester, Duluth, you know, wherever these ter- tournaments were, you know, for tournament weekends all very uh, formative and such great 
memories of building camaraderie, enjoying the outdoors, you know, getting exercise in a way that doesn't feel like you're going to the dentist. <laughs> Just all fantastic, uh, fantastic memories from childhood. Were the parents crazy back then too? You know, I don't, as a, as, as someone playing, I never really felt that way. Um, but they might have been. Maybe I just wasn't ever good enough to be on a team where the uh, the parents had a reason to uh, care too much about the outcome. How supportive were your parents playing you sports? Oh, ex- extremely supportive. Um, you know, I think they had the philosophy from early on that uh, well, we were going to play a number of different sports. You know, that the value wasn't from. Not that they ever discouraged us from thinking that we might become professional athletes, but that the value probably wasn't going to be that we were going to become the best of the best and you know, that was going to pay for college and become our livelihood, but that there was a lot of other value there. And so we were going to play a number of different sports, have a chance to be on different teams, meet different people, try out different skills. Um, and so that's, I played a number of different sports all the way through childhood. Uh, both my brother and I never became you know, single sport uh, athletes who were around the clock, uh, pushing to make that, you know, our singular priority. Um, yeah, I know that that's probably what it takes if you want to become, uh, the best of the best, but that wasn't what we were doing. And, and they were super supportive of that and all the you know benefits of camaraderie, friendship, exercise, coordinate, you know, everything that came along with being a part of a team. Tell me about your first job. Uh, so my first job actually was kind of a result of one of the sports I played. At age 14, I became a uh, certified soccer referee. And so now you ask me about the parents, I will tell you all about the crazy parents because it became a much more noticeable phenomenon when you were uh, the zebra in the middle running around blowing the whistle. Um, but I, I was a soccer referee and that was middle school at 14. Um, and, and did that job for, for a number of years. Tell me more about that. You, you know, tell me more about how you know, you're being the center of attention. Uh, and the one thing with referees is the fans and the coaches expect you to get all the calls right. But even if you got all the calls right... Well, no one's ever to the, happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> half of them are going to think you got it wrong. So tell me, tell me about some of your experiences as, as an official. Um, so I really liked being a, an official. Um, I looked at it almost as similar to being a player in the game in the sense that I go out there, I, I know what I'm supposed to do and I'm going to try to have a great game and I'm going to try to get better. And it, you know, you know, you're not going to be perfect in the same way that, you know, no player in any sport is ever going to have, you know, do everything perfectly in any given game. Um, but I think you only come to that realization once you actually are a referee and you're like, no, I'm going out to try to have a good game. <laughs> Am I ever going to have a perfect game? Probably not. But I looked at it almost as its own, own way of playing the game. It was just a different position on the field from being a goalie or from being a, you know, a striker or something like that. You were, you were there to, to play in the position of being, you know, being the referee. And uh, I had a great time doing it. When you, when you look at it that way and you realize, well, some games are going to be awesome. Some games, games you're going to leave and you're going to go, wow, I really wish I could have that one back. All right. So you go to high school at Minnehaha and then from there you go up to St. Olaf. Yes. You graduate from St. Olaf. Yep. How do you get into the popsicle business? 
So I went to school um, thinking, uh, having, you know, I, I read a lot as a kid as well, having read some of these biographies, you know, by uh, uh, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, you know, I had these heroes, you know, Bill Gates, who, thinking, okay, I, I got to get into business. It seems like the really fun job to have is starting a company and running it. That seems like the cool thing to do. That's what all, all these people did. Uh, but having absolutely no idea how you might ever approach that. So my, my idea going into college was, I think that if I got some type of degree in the humanities that touched on business skills and some type of technical degree, um, sort of smushed them together, I would be positioned really well to go off, get a job, work for a big company for a while, learn how business worked, have the technical expertise to come up with this brilliant idea that no one had ever thought of before. Maybe when I'm like 40, 40, 50, have, you know, enough security to take a leap, you know, I'll get there, I'll have my, I'll get struck by lightning, have my brilliant idea and off I'll go. 18 year old me thought this was a great idea. Um, so I went into St. Olaf thinking I'm going to be a economics and a physics double major. That That's my technical side, the business side. It's going to be great. Maybe I'll go get a master's in engineering and I'll go be an engineer for a while and learn the business enough. You know, that's how it was all going to shake out. Um, reality hit me, particularly uh, in the form of some physics textbooks. Uh, and the physics major was not for me. Um, so I had to reevaluate how that was going to go. Uh, I, didn't, I did end up, I loved economics, still do. And I did end up graduating with an economics major and, and so I actually still kind of kept the methodology because I ended up uh, adding a computer science major on in place of the physics major. Um, so I did still sort of keep that blended methodology, but about halfway through college, um, you know, I had a chance to meet a bunch of people, talk about what we were interested in, and I'd met a group of guys who had a like-minded interest in um, starting a business, right? You know, sort of that entrepreneurial bug. And we had started earlier at the end of our freshman year, we'd started an investment club. We all took out a couple hundred bucks from our savings accounts, went, opened like an E-Trade and, uh, put in this money. And we're like, we're going to be the next hedge fund. So we met a couple times a week, you know, people would bring investment theses and present them to the group. And we'd take a vote and we'd say, yeah, this is great. Here's the problem with that. That worked out to like, thousand bucks or something and uh you know a really great return would be like eight percent a year so i just do that matt we're all working for 80 bucks a year oh like that. we're not going anywhere fast with this plan um and so we started talking through other ideas and um one of the ideas that got brought up was this idea for a uh, better for you frozen treat uh this is an idea that eric uh had had with uh, his cousin jonathan a few years prior and they had started working on it, thinking about how they might get it into the market. And unfortunately, before they could they could take the concept and make it a reality, Jonathan passed away as the result of a drug overdose. And so very understandably, uh, the idea got set aside until we, we all met at school. We were talking about these business ideas. And Eric brought it back up, said, I still really uh, am passionate about this idea. I think it has a lot of potential. And above and beyond that, I think we could do something really special to, uh, you know, honor what's happened here uh, in Jonathan's memory. And uh, that's when we said, yeah, we think this has some potential too. There's an opening in the market for this type of product. And, uh, and we can name the, the brand Johnny Pops in, his, uh, in Jonathan's memory. And we adopted the motto, a better pop for a better world. Um, the first part of that mission was and still is raising awareness and supporting uh, the cause of addiction recovery, rehabilitation, and research.
and uh, and that's where it all started. We were sitting in um, in a classroom that we had reserved through the college room re- reservation system for our little business club, and uh, and said, "Yeah, let's give this thing a shot." And we, at the time, weren't even graduated from school yet. We were just about halfway through, you know, our sophomore year, and decided, you know what, summer's coming; it's around the corner. Let's uh, let's take this thing from an idea to a reality and uh, try to sell it here uh, in summer of 2012. What was your next step in that? How do you take this idea and actually make it something where I can take something and eat it? So uh, we started blocking and tackling because you're right. That's there's a huge gap there from okay, be nice to be there, and and then how do we get there? Um, and the first thing that we did was we looked at our schedule between, you know, whatever it was, October, November, uh, and, uh, and summer and said, we got five, six months to turn this thing into a reality, to get it out in time for summer and said, we got it. We're not really going to have the time to get this done unless we do something different. And so we were fortunate that at St. Olaf, they have a, uh, what's known as a four, one, four schedule. So January was off. Uh, or you take a single class. And uh, at the time, St. Olaf required you only take a class three of your four years. And so we said, we're going to need to take January off to work on this idea. And so we reached out to the school, said, here's what we want to do. And they said, great, we'll reserve you a classroom in the basement of the science hall from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, and you guys can make that your workshop. And... uh, that's what we did. We, t- you know, we, we, we worked on it, uh, you know, before then, kind of nights, weekends, you know, fitting in it where we could. But where we really started making progress was in that January. We uh, were prototyping recipes like crazy, you know, because we had to create these recipes. We were going to, to Cub Foods and Target and buying fruit and cream and sugar and salt and, you know, mixing everything together and then walking around dorm uh, halls with little cut-up pieces and survey board to uh, see if people like these flavors. And we did hundreds, maybe thousands of different uh, sample varieties that we made in these molds that at the time we bought off Amazon. And it was all, all the recipes and the prototypes were done in a dorm kitchen in the basement of, <laughs> in the basement of one of the dorms. And at the same time, uh, you know, one of us was working on pulling up, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator and designing a logo and trying to figure out what packaging might look like sourcing the packaging materials. How do we wrap these things? How do we put them in cardboard cases? And uh, then probably most importantly, how do we make these things at scale? So we were looking for, you know, the type of equipment you would need not just to make like one, two, three, four, five of these things, but to make uh, a couple hundred or a couple thousand at a time. And, uh, and, and where? That was the other big question. Where are we going to make these things? And what type of regulatory hurdles did we face? And so we started knocking on doors, literally, of places like um, churches and event centers and restaurants because the logic went, um, we, we are not going to build our own kitchen space. Um, we don't know how much time we're going to need to spend in the kitchen space out of the gate anyways. Uh, and these are the types of places, churches, event centers, caterers, who don't use their, they probably have kitchen space, but it may not be used all of the time. And it's commercial grade. So we think, we didn't know at the time, but we thought realistically, if they could produce, you know, if it was a commercial kitchen that could serve people, we could probably produce our product legally there as well. Um, 
So we went around knocking on doors in Northfield by the college and eventually found an event center who said, you know what? Sure. I'm willing to give this a try. And so, you know, we, we leased, um, you know, technically it was like 25 square feet in the corner of his kitchen where we put our specialized equipment and had the rights to use the kitchen like uh, Sunday through Thursday because they would use it for weddings and other, you know, events on Fridays and Saturdays and Sunday mornings. And uh, then we could use all the shared space. You know, we had our little corner where the stuff lived, but we could use it, you know, the whole kitchen to spread out and, you know, do our stuff when, uh, when they weren't there. With that all in place, we said, okay, we think we've got a number of the building blocks here <laughs> that we need. We might actually, you know, by the end of January, we felt like come April, May, we had the pieces that we needed to put in place to, uh, you know, to start actually selling product for the summer. And that was the summer of 2012. Uh, we made our first product and we sold it at um, farmer's markets and around the lakes in Minneapolis and at the Minnesota Zoo. It was all, you know, really, uh, you know, self-distributed, put it in the back of the car and drive fast you know, we made almost everything ourselves. We worked the farmer's markets ourselves. This was not a, uh, a super professional organization. It was, what do we need to do to get the product into people's mouths and see if they like it? And can we get that feedback? Typically, college kids are on a shoestring budget. So when you go and buy your first, you know, how did you guys pay for the initial startup uh, stuff? Uh, we were fortunate. We got a grant from... Uh, St. Olaf for a couple thousand dollars. They said, you're, you know, it was something they had an entrepreneurial grant to uh, fund students who were uh, working on these types of projects. And then that's uh, exactly the type of reason we, we put in some of our own money. Remember that investment club money? Well, we earned like 20% on it by this time. So we, we raided the investment fund that went into, uh, into Johnny Pops and we ran it on a shoestring budget. You know, we, it was the great thing about farmer's markets. It was a cash business. We could make them on Saturday night and drive them to the uh, farmer's market on, on Saturday, Sunday morning and get paid to bring them home. And your only expenses were, uh, you know, the fee you paid the farmer's market to be there, your own time, which is when you're starting out, that's free. <laughs> you, don't have that, you don't have to pay anyone for that. And, uh, you know, the cost of the groceries that went into the product. So how many units did you sell your first, your first summer doing this? Oh my goodness. I don't even, I don't even know. Uh, do you know how much money you made your first summer? It was, it was maybe like, uh, 30, $40,000. It wasn't a, it wasn't a ton, you know, it, it was a summer, it was a summer thing. You know, we were done with school, middle That's of pretty May. Good summer gig for we you went back to school, middle of August. And, uh, and that's where it all started. Okay, now what? You go through your first summer, you make your people are actually buying your product. Now what? Well, so we really felt like we were onto something when we started telling our farmers market guests, like, hey, we're only going to be here for another week or two. You know, farmers markets do pretty well in the fall. Um, lots of produce coming in, but as an ice cream item, you know, we were like, ah, we don't need to be here anymore. You know, most people were buying it to eat it. That while they were there, right? They're like, well, we'll walk around, we'll eat it. A few people would bring them home. We'll bring a cooler and bring them home. So we started saying, you know, probably uh, beginning of September, 
hey, we're in school now. Like, we're not really liking waking up at 4 a.m. on Sunday to come down here. Our sales are going down. We're going to cut this off and stop coming to these. And we really thought we were onto something when we had people start showing up then with big coolers and saying, I know you guys aren't going to be here. There's nowhere else I can buy your product. So I'm here at whatever we were selling them for at the time, 2 or $3 each, and uh, saying, I would like 60 I would like 100 And, like, we got just absolutely cleaned out product because people were like, I don't know next time I'm going to be able to get these. You know, they were probably thinking, these guys are probably going to go under. They might never be back again. (laughs) I'm just going to load up on these things and see how long they last me. And so that happened right as we were going back to school, as we were shutting uh, shutting down for the summer. And we said, we we need to figure out what it's going to take to come back bigger and better for next year. Uh, and that was kind of how we left our first summer was, do we do everything right? No. Um, you know, we may have had a decent amount of top line revenue, but by the time we covered all of our expenses, it wasn't like we made a ton of money that first year. Um, and we said, there's definitely ways we can get bigger. There's definitely ways we can do it better. Um, and there's probably just some things we have to do if we want to get bigger, uh, because you know, the, what we were doing, it wasn't sustainable. <laughs> you know, we're going to need more people. We're going to have to be more uh, compliant with some pieces of regulation as we grow. You know, things are going to have to look a little bit more professional. So what did, what did your first product look like? Like the, the product so, packaging? So the actual shape of the product is almost completely unchanged. Same with the recipes from day one uh, for the products that have been around that long. Um, But then we took it and we put it in like a little cellophane baggie, clear, and then put it in like a heat sealer. Like if you've ever done like Feed My Starving Children and you take the clear bag and you put it in there and you press it down on one end. Yeah, that's how we were doing every single pop one by one into a press, stamp down with your foot. It closes. All right. Now you're done. Do another one all by hand, one at a time. And then, even worse, after you sealed it, you couldn't just put out something with no labeling on it. So then we had stickers that, after the pop was in the bag, you'd stick a sticker on it. And um, that all sounds okay until you realize that, of course, it's a frozen item. So the only spot where this work could happen was inside of a walk-in freezer. And so we would spend hours and hours inside of walk-in freezers because this was so slow, it's, you know, like to do a set and like a mold held like 20 of them. So you'd get 20 out at a time while well, you couldn't just leave 20 out at room. I mean, you did, they'd melt if you left them out. So, uh, yeah, I was brutal. That's, but that's where it started. So it was a clear bag. You know, if, if it melted a little bit, then the bag got all messy and <laughs> it was, it was not ideal. What did you learn out of year one? Well, you're not going to believe it, but one of the first things we did is we bought a machine to automate that packaging process. <laughs> Well, it's probably our most exciting investment between year one and year two. Uh, there's these machines called flow wrappers, horizontal flow wrappers, that the bar goes onto. It goes through through the machine, and the machine takes uh, a piece of plastic and wraps it around it and cuts it off on both ends. And out the other side comes something that looks like a candy bar or granola. I mean, that's what we use, same type of machine exactly that we use today. But that's how everything that ends up with those fin seals essentially comes to be. Brilliant. That thing could do 50, 100 a minute and instead of 20 over the course of 20 minutes or something crazy like that. Uh, so that was great. The other thing was uh, we were not going to be able to share the kitchen space anymore. To get bigger, we needed more uh, space, more time, access to the kitchen. 
and probably most importantly, even more freezer space. That would forgot to be the worst. We'd be trying to carry a little bit of inventory. The event center's groceries would show up for their wedding, you know, on Thursday, Thursday afternoon. The truck would roll up with all the food on it for the weekend. And all of a sudden, we'd get an angry phone call from the owner saying, I can't fit my frozen steaks in the fridge because you guys have taken it all up with your fruit and your pops and the whole nine yards. And so we knew that we were going to have to find someplace else. Uh, So we uh, sort of built out our own production space, someplace different, in like a uh, warehouse uh, slot, you know, in a warehouse park. And we uh, made it all food safe and put in our own equipment there, put in our own freezer, which was about three times the size of the one we were using before. And uh, we were off to the races. The, The whole wrapper thing made us look a lot more professional we invested a little bit in having some professionals uh, work on our uh, graphics and our marketing and our website so that we didn't quite look like a you know, 10-year-old had scribbled our logo uh, on our packaging. So this is all going into year two? It's all going into year two. So is this the first time you guys looked at other options to capitalize the business, or is that you know is that, it further down the road? No, at that point in time, um, we were still looking at the cash that we had brought in. Um, we used a little bit more of our own and maybe some friends and family money, but it was still very, very shoestring. Uh, what is it going to take to get this job done, and then divide that by two? And can we get away with? <laughs> can we get away with that? Now you start to seriously scale, and you start to go into grocery stores and you start to scale like what was that like so things really got serious serious for us um not that next summer but the summer after because if you think about it that first summer was between our sophomore and junior year great fun thing to put on a college resume i tried to start a business same thing between your junior and senior year fun thing tried to start a business lots of you know that looks pretty good on a resume look what i did you know we grew a business for two years now hire me to do you know now pay me real money to come work for you uh but when things got really serious is when we were looking at the end of our senior year now it's the summer between college and the rest of your life that <laughs> we got you're gonna have real bills to pay we're gonna have student loans to pay and so we were staring at the choice of is this something that we want to take the leap and start working on full time trying to pay the bills with or is this something that was a fun college project and you know doesn't have the legs to carry us any further and so that's when we really started uh, thinking about the business at the next level thinking about how it was going to scale uh, what it was going to take to to really you know move the needle and uh, we did launch the product in a grocery store. So we graduated from college in 2014. That's the same year we launched the product into retail stores. Um, uh, we entered the Minnesota Cup uh, and uh, won our division of, of the Minnesota Cup. We also won a similar competition at St. Olaf called the St. Olaf Cup. Uh, you know, winning those competitions came with additional uh, grant money that we were able to use to continue to fuel uh, the growth of the business. Uh, they also started to expand our network and give us guidance and support and how we could grow the business, which was a, a hugely important part of allowing us to continue to expand. Uh, so we hired a full-time employee, really uh, number one, just before we graduated. He's still here today. Um, and and that has really, you know, now we're, we're uh, right around 50 people who work here full-time. We've gone from 50 grocery stores to north of uh, 5,000 grocery stores. And then on top of that, you've got 
uh, convenience stores, and we have a whole food service side of our business as well. So you can find our products at places like zoos and water parks and beaches and marinas, uh, you know, uh, hospitals, uh, senior living, uh, schools is a, is a huge segment of our business. Someplace we really feel that our, you know, better pot for a better world mission can make a serious impact. Uh, and uh, it's come a really long ways uh, since we started working on it full time. You touched on a little bit about uh, Better Pop, um, Better World. Can you talk more about what you guys are doing to impact the world? So, you know, it, it's great to say we have a cause and to say we support that. And we, uh, you know, and, and that you write a check, uh, you know, and that's not, that's an important part of what we do, uh, but it doesn't feel like enough. And so we've tried to do a few other things. One of them was a few years ago, we started creating um, promotions with our, our retail partners. So everyone's familiar, right? You go to the grocery store, there's an ad there, things are on sale. Well, people, manufacturers and retailers generally are chipping in money to provide that discount to you. Um, and we started thinking, well, the whole goal there, you know, this, this money is there. You're trying to get people to try the product or to buy more of it. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's a good thing, you know, as a business for us, we want to make the product accessible to people. We want to give them a reason to give it a try, but is there a way we could accomplish those objectives while also, you know, being more true to our mission? And so for the last several years, uh, with many of our key retail partners, we approach them and we, uh, say, we'd like to run a, run a promotion with you, but rather than just saying, we're going to do $2 off a box, uh, you know, the price is going to go from four ninety nine to Two ninety nine. Um, we would like to maybe give a small discount, maybe give fifty cents off, and then uh, for every box sold, we'd like to you know donate fifty cents to a local partner that supports addiction recovery, research, and rehabilitation. And we'd like to promote that with you in store and online, and share uh, raise awareness about the cause, and and you know uh, really build your community. And those have been extremely successful uh, when we're able to find customers who really get what that type of partnership means. Uh, and we feel great about it. I mean, we think it's awesome because it's a way for us to to repurpose, you know, to achieve a lot of the objectives that a bit that our type of business needs to achieve, which is we need people to be excited about buying the product. We need to, you know, introduce new people to the product because, you know, I, I know that not everyone knows what Johnny Pops are or has had a chance to try Johnny Pops yet. Uh, we just haven't been around that long. Uh, and so we've run that promotion across the country. And that's been a really great way outside of just us making an impact, you know, uh, at the scale that we can to expand that. Cause usually we're able to approach those retailers and their marketing departments or their philanthropic foundations and expand our impact beyond what we could accomplish alone. One of the other things that we do, and we started doing this several years ago is we were thinking about ways, you know, we could uh, engage around our mission with our consumers and then get our consumers to make an impact in their communities is on every uh, on every Johnny Pop stick, you if you look at it, after you eat the pop off of it, you won't find uh, a joke uh, or a famous quote. What you're going to find is uh, what we call Better World Challenge. It's a little good deed, a kind deed to encourage people uh, to pay it forward and make their world a better place one pop at a time. And we uh, engage, uh, started off coming up with those ourselves, but now, uh, you know, almost all of those ideas are user uh, are user generated, uh, and in particular, as our uh, partnerships with uh, schools have expanded, we have a whole set of activities 
that we like to do with schools that promote uh, social and emotional learning, uh, which is thinking about these ways that we build community and we teach people more than just about uh, numbers and you know how to read, but how to be good people, how to be kind to each other. And it's uh, there's probably more focus on it now across the country than there has been in a while. Uh, but we believe that there's, uh, you know, ways that we can contribute to that with, with what our product stands for. And it ties into the good deeds that we print on the sticks. And, and one of those activities is that we ask students to think about what they're going to do to be, uh, you know, to be kind, what's their good deed. And so a lot of those actual uh, good deeds on the sticks now come out of, uh, come out of those programs and partnerships that we have with schools. What have you learned going through all this? Oh, my gosh. Uh, how much time uh, do we... You, you well, a maybe couple, give me, give me, couple a, hours, give me a the couple top days. two. Give me the top two. Um, I mean, the top two is that it is... Uh, it's never as easy as it looks from the outside. Uh, every you, you look at anything that's successful, and you say, wow, overnight they went from nothing to something, and it's like it just... Wow, they just got lucky. Um, and... You actually hear that, and it's not that uh, I would probably even take a harder stance on this than I think some people would, that there is absolutely uh, an amount of, of luck involved in seizing opportunity and, and going after the right things uh, that has allowed us to be successful, absolutely. But uh, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, from, from inside, it feels like it takes forever, and, um, and it's a lot of hard work. And you don't – the time it works – everyone sees it. And the other 50 times that you ran straight into a brick wall and fell down, uh, no one sees those. And regardless of how long it takes you, uh, that process exists. And it's, uh, it, it just takes, it takes longer and it's harder than, than you would think when you just see it. And I see it now. I see uh, companies and brands and I'm like, wow, they just came out of nowhere. And then I'll meet, you know, the owners or I'll meet the, uh, you know, the CEO at a, at a trade show or something and I'll have a chance to say, so like, what did it take? And they're like, Oh my gosh, just let me tell you. And, and I'm sure you talk to a lot of people and, uh, I don't know what your experience <laughs> has been, but at least when I talk to people, you know, it, it just feels like you always see the instant success, but it's, uh, it's never instant. <laughs> Uh, that's one. Let's see. What else? Um, I think that uh, we have, uh, this is something that we look for when we bring people onto our team because we think we've learned a little bit about, you know, what makes people most likely to be successful in an environment where you're really growing and creating things very quickly, uh, which is, one, the ability to um, think uh, quickly and critically and outside the box I'm not looking for someone who's done. Um, I'm going to pick something that, that's hopefully fairly uh, to, someone to come in here and um, buy the supplies for us. We're not looking for someone who has been doing that job for 35 years for a really big company, even though we want to go become a big company, uh, because that's not going to tell me just whether or not, you know, that's going to tell me, you know how to do it away and you have done it for a while. Uh, that may not be the right fit here. I know there's going to be different problems, and probably most importantly, because of our growth rate, the way you're going to do it this year compared to next year compared to three years from now are all going to be very different. And if what you're most excited about is coming in, setting it up, and then watching it run for the next five, ten years, 
you're going to have a really tough time here. Um, and two is persistence and grit. Uh, to have the uh, willingness to keep trying and keep going after it, uh, even if it doesn't work out the first time, that it it takes uh, it's a, it's a trait, and it's something that we view as critically important to uh, being able to succeed. Hey, thanks for listening to the show today. If you like this show or any other of our shows, make sure to give us a five star rating on iTunes. If you want to read the stories written by our guests, you can do that on www.linkly.com. Don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter so you don't miss any of these stories. Make sure to check out our social pages. We have them all. Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have any suggestions for our show, please write us on Facebook. I'm Corey Kosky, and you've been listening to How I Got Here from Linkly. Special thanks to Wade Beavers and our friends at the restaurant Agriculture.